today, the secret meaning in Plato's dialogues, the weird math in the Republic, and the spacey dream logic of the myth of Ur. I'm Cliff Mark, and this is Good in Theory. Today's episode is going to be slightly different than usual. I've got a guest. He knows a lot about Plato. We're going to talk about that. And that's not out of the ordinary. But he takes a very different approach to Plato than I do. Earl Fontenelle is the creator of a podcast called The Secret History of Western Esotericism, or the Schwepp. And in that podcast, he refers to Plato as the father of Western esotericism. He may have changed his mind about that. We'll get into it. But that leaves us with the question, what is esotericism? It's different from philosophy. Usually, philosophers, especially nowadays, they try to understand the explicit things that people say in their texts. We analyze arguments that are on the surface, right? What did Plato say? Or in in Plato's case, it's a little bit complicated, so we might ask, what does Socrates say? But esotericism, that's all about secret messages hidden within texts that are meant only for the initiated. So think of the Da Vinci Code or Foucault's Pendulum by Umberto Eco or one of my favorites, the Illuminatus Trilogy. And it may seem strange on a theory and philosophy podcast to bring an approach that seems more adjacent to the occult and to conspiracies. But actually, it's not that strange. Because as Earl will point out, there are plenty of clues that there's more going on in the Republic than is apparent on the surface. And as a matter of fact, for most of history, most readers of Plato assumed that he was writing esoterically. So we'll be talking today about the esoteric reading of Plato in general and the esoteric reading of the Republic in particular. In particular, in particular, I'm going to ask him about math. Because if you remember the Republic series, you'll remember that some of the most puzzling passages in the book happen when Socrates comes out with some weirdly precise mathematical argument. There's the divided line. There's the complicated baby math that governs the eugenics program in the city and speech. And there's the argument towards the end that the philosopher is exactly 729 times happier than the tyrant. I'm going to ask Earl about all of these puzzles and more. We go on for a pretty long time and we get into some kind of obscure stuff, but it's all fascinating. So, without further delay, Fontenelle of the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. Welcome to Good in Theory. First off, I want to say I am a fan of the Schwepp. The scholarship is great. The music, which we just played, is excellent. And the whole podcast has a kind of mysterious mood to it, which I really dig. So can we just start off by uh, having you tell us a little bit about yourself and the project? My, I'm a para-academic historian of ideas. 
I'm working on this thing, the Schwepp, which is a chronological exploration of this historical field of complex interrelated currents, which people talk about under the rubric of Western esotericism. Um, and it's this sort of stupidly long-term uh, project. We, it's been going on almost four years now. We're in the third century CE, and the end point is, I guess it'll be like the year <laughs> 2030 or whatever when the project is done, and we'll bring it right up to date and then call it a, call it a day or a decade. Yeah. And that's, that's what it is. So what is Western esotericism? It is a... It is a concept that's been partly invented by esotericists themselves, but it's been taken on by scholarship. And it's somewhat artificial, but also does apply to historically recognizable mm -hmm. things that really happened and beliefs that people really had. Um, and people, scholars will always disagree about Firstly, what Western means. Secondly, what they mean by esotericism. But thirdly, also just exactly what we're supposed to include in this. But um, if you've ever read Francis Yates, or um, if you've ever read Foucault's Pendulum by Umberto Eco, mm -hmm. which is kind of mm -hmm. a satire reception of, a loving satire reception of Western esotericism, that's the kind of territory we're talking about. So... Um secret messages, historical mysteries, uh, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. In, in the podcast, I think you give a sort of tentative definition of esotericism as the practice of writing something that's hidden to most audiences, but is specifically for a particular audience, and only they will understand it. Yes. Well, I'll give you... I have a two... I have a working definition. And right. There's two things that we consider for esotericism. Uh, the first is a, not just writing, but a speech act in which um, the information being given is A, um, represented as being only for an initiated elite of some kind, and B, is knowledge of a qualitatively higher type. So the first part, mm -hmm. the represented part, is key because sometimes people publish things like that that famous new age book the secret have you come across that yeah of course but i i haven't read it though it, it's this cheesy new age book and it's called the secret so you think oh it's a secret but the thing's been tr mm -hmm. published you know sold 10 million copies it's been published <laughs> in right. 40 languages whatever it is it ain't a secret right so that's an example of the rhetoric of esotericism and it's higher knowledge so it's it's not just a secret like um you know a computer password it's a secret it's knowledge that's been given by god or by uh divine mediators or through a state of enlightenment in the case of buddhism it's mm -hmm. it's qualitatively higher knowledge so that's the esoteric now the other thing you want to talk about is the actual practice of social es esotericism, practice of exclusion. And this this does mm -hmm. exist. So you get, you know, for example, Freemasonry. This is a famous example that everyone knows. The Masons don't allow just anyone in. You have to become a member. You have to be invited. Then you become a member. Then you learn the secrets. The secrets have right. all been published. That doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point <laughs> is, the, is the kind of enactment of 
social esotericism. The ancient mystery cults is another well-known example. So it still counts as a mystery if everyone knows the mysteries, they've been published, but you still go and you do the, you know, the rituals? I'd say so. It's certain, it certainly fits my definition of the esoteric, right? We have a lot of evidence, for example, that the Eleusinian mysteries, which mm-hmm. is the, the mysteries that for the ancients and for Plato were the kind of uh, gold standard by which all mysteries should be judged because they were the Athenian cult. Right. Um, we have a lot of evidence that these that the secrets, if there were secrets, were revealed on numerous occasions in public. And this was a criminal offense to do this. You could get punished for it, but it, it happened. So it's like, if, it's, if we're really talking about secrecy, the secret's out. Sorry, guys. Um, but that's not right. what we're talking about. We're talking <laughs> about something performative. Right. Um, so you call Plato the father of Western esotericism. Yeah. Um, I, in, in doing the podcast, I would... My thought thinking on this has changed. I would mm-hmm. now call him the grandfather of Western esotericism. Okay, okay. <laughs> because um, he's not really Western. He's pre-Western, if that makes sense. The, the West, I think the West as a meaningful historiographical right, construct I, yes. doesn't yet exist in Plato's time. He might not be Western yet, but... He still may have fathered Western esotericism, or at least grandfathered it. Why do you think that? So what are the signs that uh, Plato is hiding messages for an initiated crowd that is of a, a higher order? I see what you're saying. So um, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But yeah. the, the reason for him being the grandfather of Western esotericism isn't just that. It's not just because he exercises the, the esoteric, if he does. It's also because... He is, in many ways, the father of macrocosm, microcosm, construction Mm. of the human self and the cosmos. He's the father of the immaterial, immortal soul, which reincarnates. He's the father of um, a intangible, invisible world, which is sort of separate from our world of everyday Mm-hmm. coming to be but which is intimately connected to and indeed is the foundation of our world so this idea of thinking about forms thinking about underlying realities which is runs right through western esotericism in a lot of ways um not in all cases like the alchemists mm-hmm. for example that's a different kind of stream but but do, do you see what i mean so it's his ideas right so like even if plato isn't writing esoterically himself his ideas and the themes that he talks about, like the forms and stuff, that inspires esotericists that come after him. Yeah, that- so those themes I've just given are some ones that are really mm-hmm. important right through. Yeah, and you'll see this in esoteric currents in the Abrahamic traditions in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance where mm-hmm. you'll have, you have mainstream Christianity, God creates the world, simple, there's God, there's the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you keep seeing these little movements popping up here and there that are talking about forms as ideas in the mind of God. And God doesn't just create the world. First, the forms exist, and then you have this sort of emanatory cosmology. So this is like a kind of Platonistic strand within Christianity that keeps popping up. And it often is expressed through more esoteric currents of Christianity. Now, maybe that's not what you want to talk about. You want to talk about, uh-huh. was Plato writing esoterically, right? Yeah. Um, interestingly, 
the majority reading of Plato from the first century BCE, at least, if not earlier, until the 19th century. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of people reading Plato have read him as an esoteric author, including the Platonists themselves. So the idea that he isn't an esoteric author mm -hmm. is modern. <laughs> um, everyone up until recently right. has assumed okay. that he is. And you can even talk about writing in the Platonic mode, modo platonico in, in Latin. And that means writing with a secret hidden meaning subtext. Huh. That is so interesting that for most of history, writing in the Platonic way means writing esoterically. And with that in mind, I'd like to get on to the Republic because I did a 13-part series on the Republic. It is an adaptation. There's commentary. It's pretty in-depth for a podcast. But still, even in that amount of time, I can only really sail across the surface of the book. Um, I get a bit into interpretation, but I certainly didn't get into the deeper, esoteric, possibly hidden meanings of the book. And you are obviously just the guy to tell us about that. So without saying for sure what Plato himself might have been doing, why do people think, why do his readers think that the Republic might have more to it than is on the surface? Okay, well, there's the first reason, which is that a lot of people think everything in Plato has more to it than is on the surface, which we've just talked about. Um, right. Secondly, and, and you know, that's not a crazy standpoint. Let me just say this. Uh, in the analytic study of Plato, it's, it's seen as a bit of a fringe position, especially in the Anglo-American world. It isn't crazy, guys. Um, Plato is choosing to write these aporetic dialogues that intentionally mess with your head, right? Yes. It sometimes seems to me that even if he wasn't writing esoterically, in the sense we've talked about, he's doing his damnedest to make you think he's writing esoterically. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Okay. Like okay. he's vexing us on purpose and leaving stuff <laughs> open-ended on purpose. So we have to at least deal with that in some way. Okay, let's talk about the Republic specifically. You know, we have... Um, Going back to antiquity, we have lots of commentaries on the Republic. Um, mm -hmm. Proclus's being one of the, probably, I'm going to say the longest that survives. I could be wrong about that. But we have a, an enormous uh, commentary by Proclus, the late Platonist, on the Republic. And he preserves loads of people's opinions on the Republic. And it's very mm -hmm. clear from Proclus and also the tradition that he's drawing on that in antiquity, not only did everyone think this this dialogue was absolutely chock full of hidden meanings and uh, crazy symbols and and you know weird structural games, um, right? But if you read it, you kind of think, yeah, I think I think there must be something in this. That's my reading. Anyway, now then, um, there's a I, let me let me ask let me, you this, let me this get question to the about specifically. yeah, um, just about the idea that Plato is. Uh, vexing us on purpose or is writing these open-ended confusing dialogues yeah. now i think it is quite obvious that you know he's provoking aporia they are confusing they are open-ended and you can't solve them so i wouldn't try to guess that 
Plato has this like very clear, explicit message. They are confusing, but they might be... What is the difference between them being confusing in the sense that we don't know a Shakespeare's message, mm. right? Um, or, or, or the message of a certain film. Um, and esotericism where there's actually like this higher order hidden meaning. Mm. Uh, whereas there might not be in a play, right? It's just it's yeah. the, the art is the interplay of all these confusing different strands of thought. Yeah. Um, where, what's the difference between those two? It, it would be, I guess, in Plato's intention, which we can never truly access. However, I would say that it, as a thought experiment, straightforward philosophic prose, yeah. just saying this is what I think, definitely existed by Plato's time. Aristotle wrote it in a, in a extremely dry and grueling fashion, and many people <laughs> before him did as well. Uh, that was an option on the table, and Plato didn't choose it. Why? Right. Well, I mean, maybe because he thought it was more stimulating to write plays. So I guess what I'm saying is, why do you think that he's doing esotericism instead of just like uh, being a playwright? I'm I'm agnostic about it. I okay. study the Platonist tradition. So I'm studying. Why do the Platonists think that then? <laughs> Why did they think it? We don't know. Well, we do know uh, for some, we have two explicit statements of why Plato wrote esoterically in um, Platonists. So mm -hmm. Plutarch writing in the first century says he did it um, basically for reasons of philosophic elitism. Um, so as not to cast pearls before swine, paraphrasing, right? Right. Um, which is something that appears in Plato as well. He does talk about this, like in Sophist, for example, he says, you know, you can't just throw philosophy out in front of anyone because they're going to just sort of like get it mucky. Um, and in the Republic, he talks about, you know, definitely not everyone is going to be a philosopher, right? There is an elite. <laughs> and absolutely. In Numenius of Apamea, a personal favorite of mine in the second century CE, he has a wonderful bit in one of his fragments where he says, why did Plato uh, write esoterically? He did it because um, he saw what happened to Socrates. Right. Or, you know, basically stating uh, uncomfortable truths to power. What happens? You get, you have to drink the hemlock. Therefore, Plato hid himself by writing between clarity and obscurity, which is a very interesting way of putting uh -huh. it. So those right. are the only two explicit reasons for Plato's um, sort of uh, choice to write esoterically found in Platonism that I'm aware mm -hmm. of. And the second one is is clearly fully in line with Leo Strauss's reading, right? It's, it's Straussian right, esotericism. You write unclearly on purpose. It keeps the herd away because they can't really get what you're doing because they're not philosophical and they don't have the time and the energy. Mm -hmm. But then mm -hmm. the truly philosophical student is going to find it. And they're the ones who aren't going to try to poison you with hemlock for saying uncomfortable truths because they're philosophers. So everyone's safe. You can publish openly, but esoterically using this sort of Straussian methodology. Right. And so to get um, to the Republic. Yeah. Then. Um, let me just say one more thing about the Republic. Um, there is a, sure. there's a report in antiquity. This is getting back to what you said earlier about yeah. why should we think the Republic is full of esoteric stuff? There's a report in antiquity that Plato upon his death um, 
they found a bunch of wax tablets on which he'd rewritten and rewritten the opening line of the Republic over and over. Uh huh. So I love this. Now this is probably not literally true for various reasons, but I think what it bespeaks is an understanding on the part of the reading public that Plato, like nothing in the Republic is accidental. It's so finely tuned and constructed with such care, such like ridiculous self-referential structural care Mm -hmm. that um, it has, you know, every word has to be weighed. So the fact that it starts with the word katebein, I went down and it has this whole series of ascent and descent motifs throughout the whole thing. And then it ends with the myth of Ur where he goes down and then he comes up again. Uh, This is all on purpose. And that obviously the, that ascent and descent uh, themes play into the divided line, the cave, Uh which you've talked about, I'm sure on your podcast. Yes. um, So this is all on purpose and it gets in a minute, we're going to talk about the mathematical stuff, I'm sure. And then we'll see, more of like this kind of structural stuff in action and what he's doing with mm-hmm. it. Well, yeah, just when you were when you were talking about how carefully this is constructed, you know, down to the word, to the syllable, um, that I think is a great segue into the first passage in Republic that I want to talk to you about, mm-hmm. which is um, the the analogy of the divided line. Yeah. So just to remind the listeners, this is from book six in the Republic. And uh, for good in theory, it's in the part nine of the Republic series, Horny for the Good. And in this in this part of the story, Socrates and the boys have planned out the city and they've put the philosopher kings in charge. And now they're talking about how to educate the philosopher kings. And then Socrates gets into these three really famous metaphors, which are the sun, the line, and the cave. And so the sun is, Socrates is talking about what the philosopher kings will be studying. He talks about the form of the good, which is this transcendent, beautiful thing that's realer than everything else and lends reality and truth to everything else. Um, So I find the sun a really vivid image. And the last one is the cave, which is also another really vivid metaphor. But in the middle, he drops in the divided line and he pays a lot of attention to it. it's supposed to be very important, but to me, reading this as an undergrad, it was always so much less memorable and evocative than the the sun and the cave. Um, so maybe you could just bring us through what the divided line is on the surface and how that links into some of these hidden meanings and patterns that people have found um, in the Republic. Yeah, so that's that's a great example for this kind of structural stuff, which can be read as intentional esotericism or intentional um, just ridiculous craftsmanship on Plato's part, or it can mm-hmm. be read in other ways. Um, the divided line, Socrates says, so, and Socrates is expressing this with what seems to be intense irony to, to Glaucon and saying, ah, like you still don't understand Glaucon? Let me put it to you this way. This will explain things. <laughs> and then he comes with the divided line and, and Glaucon's kind of like, uh-huh. <laughs> Thanks for that explanation, Socrates. Which is something you've brought out nicely in your in your podcast, this sort of where Glaucon is kind of saying, oh yeah, that's very clear, Socrates, but it's quite obvious. Totally it's not, unclear. It's not clear. <laughs> so um, as in, before we even get into the divided line, let's just say with all these things that are sometimes referred to as the mathematical puzzles of the mm-hmm. Republic, um, 
they are surely, surely in my interpretation, made to make the reader work and maybe draw a diagram and try to nut it out and do some geometry and mathematics while reading or while having it read to you because it was probably recited in its initial Athenian context, right? That in itself could be seen as a bit of Straussian esotericism. So um, if you're Cornford, for example, Francis MacDonald Cornford, the translator of Plato's Republic, who does a very serviceable translation into English, you skip these bits, not the divided line, it's too essential to skip, <laughs> but you skip the nuptial number and the number of the tyrant, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh -huh. because you just can't see what possible relevance they have to the text as a whole. That's because you're not the initiated elite, Francis Cornford. So... Or you, or you can't just make sense of it. So yeah. you're afraid your translation is wrong. Which is, I mean, look, I, I got to say, I, I have at least some sympathy for for that feeling. Me too. When encountering these passages. Well, when we talk about these passages, you yeah. will see that I too am not of the philosophical elite. I can at least um, be in aporia, maybe in an educated way, but I'm not uh -huh. out of my aporia about these passages. But the divided line is uh, a line that shall be divided. I'm going to paraphrase Socrates here and tell me if I'm getting everything, yeah. all the essentials. It's a line that should be divided according to a certain ratio into two pieces. Then each of those pieces will again be divided by the same ratio, giving us four segments of line. Mm -hmm. Now, each of these segments will correspond to a certain type of uh, human cognition, and each type of cognition will have its appropriate objects of cognition. So the lowest one is akasia, which is sometimes translated as conjecture. It's a it's a term that Plato has basically coined for the ad hoc for this passage, which is normal practice for him. Mm -hmm. it, it's like a kind of shadowy um, knowledge of secondary artificial things. So it's like it's like a bit like the shadows, knowledge of the shadows in the cave. Right. Um, then you go up, and the, the the and it's very much an up and down thing. Now the top two tiers of the divided line are um, episteme, scientific knowledge or knowledge of. Well, it's usually translated as scientific knowledge, not in the sort of modern term of science, but in terms of a, a body of knowledge based on proven axioms that is not is based on sort of deduction it's not just purely guesswork and the highest one which all the commentators want to say applies to noesis this very peculiar uh -huh. greek term but socrates doesn't come out and say that he just kind of says oh and the highest one i can't really express it to you tell you what it is let's move on so another piece of what might be platonist esotericism there um Anyway, that is knowledge of the forms, or rather, that is mm -hmm. doing the forms, encountering the forms directly. No possibility of uh, error because the forms are right there and you're right there with them and you're encountering reality in its, um, in its most naked form, right? Yeah, and that's the largest section of the line. Well, because... you tell me. No one can decide. It, Socrates certainly <laughs> doesn't say that. Socrates never says which which ones are the highest and the lowest. And uh, Brumbaugh, in his book, Plato's Mathematical Imagination, which is a very in-depth uh, investigation of all of these things in Plato, which I highly recommend to anyone, but don't think that by reading it, you're going to come out 
with the solution <laughs> to any of these things. Um, he points out that this idea that biggest must be best is actually a really modern way of approaching the line. And huh. for the Pythagoreans, uh, it's the lower numbers that are the most important. One, two, three, you know, up to 10. Who cares about, you know, 5,862? So the idea that the biggest part of the line is going to be the best part is maybe, maybe exactly the opposite of what Plato meant. The fact is we don't know from the text which is the biggest bit and which is the smallest bit. Do we not know which is the biggest bit or which is the smallest bit? Or do we not know if biggest means important? Or we don't know either? We don't know either. For Wonderful. sure. Socrates doesn't <laughs> because say. everyone's drawing the same diagrams, you know, in all the translations. I know, I know, <laughs> and it's silly. Um, now, if you ask me, and this is... So Socrates doesn't really tell us what the ratio... He says there's a ratio. It's really important that uh -huh. you use this ratio. Um, and just like in the Timaeus, it's, it's important. It's clear that ratios are really important to Plato. Now, we can look at the this discussion of music in the Republic and see mm -hmm. maybe where he's coming from on that, right? Because his music theory is based on whole number harmonic ratios, right? Pythagorean, mm -hmm. so-called Pythagorean music theory. Um, so five over four, one over two, that's your octave, all this kind of stuff, right? Right. Um, this now, is the other parts of the Republic uh, over years and years. I just kind of skimmed over because I'm like, yeah. I just, I do not know modern music, much less ancient Greek music. Yeah. Um, like with astronomy. So astronomy and music theory are both really important for education of the um, the ruling class in, this, in the Republic, right? Mm -hmm. Why are they important and how are they to be done? Well, they're not to be done. For example, astronomy is not to be done, Socrates tells us, by actually stargazing because then it, things get messy. What we have to do is a kind of perfect... Ast mathematical astronomy whereby mm -hmm. the messiness of reality is not there and you have some kind of pure mathematical um, we want astronomy without stars and music without sound harmony without sound there you go so yeah. um it may be that that's where he's coming from with this ratio business mm -hmm. um there's other possibilities but uh but, but the but the divided line is in a specific ratio it must be but what is that yeah. ratio? No, I, I personally have no doubt that the ratio uh -huh. in question is the so-called phi in moth modern mathematics, also widely known as the golden section or the golden mean, which okay. is a ratio of 1 to 1.618033, blah, blah, re repeating. It's an irrational number that repeats forever. Mm -hmm. Now, this ratio has some certain qualities which make it very interesting. It appears in nature all the time. It appears in the way living things grow it appears in shells uh -huh. it appears in you know like in nature it's just the way it's it's sort of um fundamental to the way organisms grow but yes. it also has mathematical properties have you talked about the golden section at all in your podcast yet i did not okay cool so let's i'll just quickly yes. talk about it get into it <laughs> um it's the only way to divine a line whereby the short um, let's say you divide a line by the, you have a line a AC and you mm -hmm. divide it at B such that AB is the short piece. It's one and BC is 1.618. That mm -hmm. is the only possible way of dividing a line such that AB is to BC as BC is to 
AC. In other words, that the short piece is to the large piece as the large piece is to the whole. Okay, I'm going to put a diagram of this in the show notes, but this is the this is the ratio of the divided line we're saying. That's my guess. And that's what we think. Um, yeah. Why should we think that? Well, um, it's got to be a pretty important ratio for Plato to be mm-hmm. going on about it. And as Maya Alepin's recent PhD thesis, the Philosophical Implications of Interpreting Plato Through Musical Analysis, University of New Mexico 2021, has shown without a shadow of a doubt, because she does quantitative number crunching digital analysis of the text, if you were to take the entire text of the Republic and stretch Mm -hmm. it out as Greek letters with no spaces between them, right? So it's a line, in other words. Uh, one giant line of text. One giant line of text. And you were yes. to to divide it exactly at the golden cut of that text. That cut would fall precisely within the discussion of the divided line. <laughs> this, you know, this is uh, reminding me of that movie Pi that came out in the 90s. This is some very serious, mysterious stuff. So just to clarify, we're talking about a divided line that we think that Socrates is describing. It's divided in a specific ratio. Now, if we turn the text of the entire Republic into one line of letters, a giant string of letters, you're saying that the cut in the divided line, the discussion of divided line happens in the same place as a line divided in that ratio would be like if the text was divided in that line. Yeah, if you were to divide the line according to the golden section, the uh-huh. cut would fall kind of in the middle of the discussion of the divided line. Not right at the beginning, like right in the middle. Uh-huh. There, for sure. Um, so That's wild. Is that an accident? Some people would just say, yeah, it's an accident. Who knows? But It's a hell of an accident. It's a hell of an accident, isn't it? <laughs> Especially in a piece of writing which is famous in antiquity for being the one that Plato took the most time in writing and rewriting and structuring, right? So we, sh- we should expect, if we expect anywhere in Plato to have some something like this, this is the dialogue to expect it in. And actually Plato does stuff like this in lots of dialogues. So I think there's a strong uh, reason to think about the golden section. The golden section is something that we know the Egyptians and in a, in a geometric way, used and knew about. We know that Near Eastern peoples knew about in a more mathematical, like arithmetical way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also know that the Greeks found um, irrational numbers hard to deal with and maybe even kind of unholy in the Pythagorean uh-huh. context. Um, <clears throat> but it's really hard to get back to what the Pythagoreans really thought about this stuff. It's all kind of lore. But um, certainly these kinds of important mathematical structures that had really interesting qualities like the platonic solids that are discussed in Uh the Timaeus. Plato's really interested in these, right? Really interested in them. So why he brings up this divided line as a kind of model for consciousness or cognition, I don't know. But it's it's very clear that for Socrates in the Republic, it's really important that it has to be this line with with a certain ratio. And he's clearly inviting us to figure out what the ratio is. I think the golden section is the is the obvious candidate, the obvious standout candidate. Um, what else would it be? 
I mean, I certainly can't think of any other obvious candidate for what this ratio might be. Although, why would there be an obvious candidate? Right. What I'm saying is, but let's say, let's say that is the ratio. Yeah. But then from what else, how does that change our reading of the Republic? Mm, good question. Except um, to say, you know, oh, he's done this really neat trick. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, that To answer that question would be to answer, why does Plato think geometry is so important? Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know. Socrates tells us some stuff about why geometry is going to be important for education of mm -hmm. the, the rulers. But it has to do with the harmonies of the soul, right? And it has well, to, yes. it has to do with And that's music. all also as 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 mysterious as the geometry stuff. Yeah. Um, um the soul has to be made musical. So what does that mean exactly? Okay, we have to get back into a an a certain understanding of music, which is I mean, it's often called Pythagorean, but that's ahistorical, but let's call it based on whole number ratios, not based on actually playing the guitar, but based on mm -hmm. perfect um, whole number ratios in a kind of idealized scale system. And he well, when he's giving, he's giving the curriculum, right. And describing the study of music and, and astrology and all that, he's saying, well, look, you don't want to have all these people looking silly, twisting their, torturing their strings and holding their ears up to sounding boards. Right. We're, we're, we're not in the harmony for the sound. We're into harmony for the perfect proportions. Yeah. And the soul itself seems to be something that is proportional, right? right. Um, here in the Republic, it's the threefold soul, of course, but um, also in the Timaeus, when, when the Demiurge um, constructs the soul stuff into the cosmos, he does it according uh -huh. to this ratio that's expressed in the famous platonic lambda diagram and there's a lot of ratio stuff going on here which is not the the relevance of which to plato's philosophy is not uh obvious at least not to a well modern. let me let me try out my very lazy theory on you please do which is that um i i I totally buy that there are these sort of mysterious mathematical patterns and that there are these puzzles that Plato is, you know, teasing us and making us do the work and trying purposely to vex us. I, I completely agree with that. Um, but then the question is, is why? And this is why I've been pressing you on like, what is the deeper meaning? Once we know this, once we've seen part of the answer to this puzzle or think that we have, what else does it tell us? And if, if the answer is nothing then he might just be putting brain teasers in the work just because he likes brain teasers and mm. it may be that you know like there's puzzles here and yeah there's a solution to them and they're a fun little like side quest when you're when you're reading or the book or hearing it recited but um it might not bear on like a deep uh message of wisdom or, or necessarily a change in what we might overall think is the like ethical message of, of the Republic, whatever we think it is. I see what you're saying. Um, I don't think it's fair to assume that the ethical message is the main message of the Republic. Right. Or of Plato, even though everyone talks about the Socratic turn toward ethics uh, in Greek philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, here's why I think that. Are you familiar with the testimony to the... Um, the lecture on the good. Yes, but please uh, refresh everyone. So there's a student, we have testimony from Aristotle and one of his students that Plato gave this lecture. And this is also at the heart of the whole um, 
esotericism debate because it's mm-hmm. so weird this historical report that it's hard to know what the hell to make of it but allegedly he he announced there was going to be a lecture in athens on on the good and um everyone came like just kind of all comers right it's just an open lecture right, public lecture and he baffled everyone because they all came this is what aristotle says they all came thinking of, they were going to hear something about you know sort of the good in the normal greek sense of right. the term like uh, how, how to make money we, family yeah, uh, or how should politics we live? how should we live where how do you get eudaimonia how do you become live a blessed life which is a, something uh-huh. that you know everyone is really interested in in this period from socrates onwards and instead of that what they got was um the good is one <laughs> and <laughs> and a bunch of mathematics and so, ah, Plato. <laughs> I think that Plato, um, in some way that I definitely do not claim to understand, uh, and which may indeed change over time, because I'm not a unitary reader of Plato. I think he, I think reading Plato for a unitary message is, is to take the example you gave earlier. It's like reading Shakespeare for a unitary message, expecting him always to say the same thing. You know, um, probably not a clever way of reading uh, a dramatist but um you can certainly read him as someone who has some themes that he's really interested in and uh i think he has some kind of mathematical esoteric ontology and metaphysics like he really Uh thinks that numbers are somehow deeply related to the structure of reality and he's exploring that and so when he says the good is one He's not, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's like a, he's like dropping a bomb and then everyone goes, right. Plato, you're nuts and walks out and he's like, haha, this proves what I was always thinking that, you know, very few are suited to be true philosophers and then kind of walks <laughs> off in a huff or whatever. But, um, so I think that's what's going on. I think that's what's going on with, um, the one or with the form of the good in the Republic which doesn't seem to make uh-huh. any sense if we're trying to look for like th- an ethics of goodness. I mean, all kinds of analytic philosophers read this and they say, ah, like this is an, eth- this is a, a practical ethic and this is how you would live it. And uh-huh. you would always have reference to the good, but like he's talking about something that's transcends all knowledge. It trans it's epikena tesusias. It's beyond essence. It can't be cognized in any way. Uh, what the hell is it? Right. Well, it's well, it's one. <laughs> and- <laughs> well, it's you know, it's just funny because Socrates says to Glaucon, right? Like, listen, listen, I can't really explain this to you; you wouldn't get it. And then there's this um, lecture that Plato gives, and he says, "Okay, I'll explain it to you." And then at the end, see, I told you, you didn't get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, now, what's the chronology? Did the Republic come out first, and then the lecture on the good happen? Did the lecture on the good happen? Uh, then the Republic uh, come out. Yeah. No one knows. Um, why the hell Plato would have given this lecture in public when he has all these? If he's supposed to be this esoteric guy who doesn't cast mm-hmm. pearls before swine, that's just a, a complete question beggar. That is, um, every time you think you know what's going on, it's kind of poking you in the eye and going, "Oh yeah, what about this?" So it's it's a really right. tough one to make sense of. But um, 
anyway, for, for what it's worth, that's my feeling on Plato. I'm, you know, sort of agnostic about pretty much everything Plato is actually trying to say, but I do yeah. get the sense that he has this really deep obsession stroke interest in the relationship between uh, mathematical realities and uh -huh. the rest of reality. Right. Okay. Good. So, so an ethics. I mean, I, 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 I think like again, I, I see that, but then I don't know what to make of it because maybe I just don't know enough about math and ancient Greek music. Maybe you need to do forty a forty year education um, <laughs> devoted to you know kind of step by step introduction to these disciplines, and then you would maybe be able to see the. I feel good, like right? the stories the stories I heard in childhood have already ruined my soul, so <laughs> I'm not sure it's worth the worth the thirty year investment in in um, solid geometry and so on. Uh, yeah, we've we've missed the window. <laughs> Let me ask you then about a couple of other of these uh, mathematical things. So as I came across some of them, I did know enough that I think Plato was being quite precise in his numbers. So I kept a lot of these specifics in, in, in the podcast, but I didn't go deeply into the interpretation for you know, all of the big questions that we're talking about now, which is that, look, if I'm doing half an hour, hour long episodes, and I'm trying to get through a book or so of, of Republic, um, this is a deep rabbit hole to fall down. Yeah. So I'd like to play you a couple of clips from the podcast. And, and maybe you can, I'll tell you what we said in uh, the podcast, and maybe you can shed some, any other insight that you might have on them. So the first one is the nuptial number clip. And so this is book eight of The Republic. It's our episode called Degenerate Cities, Degenerate Souls. And Glaucon and Socrates, they're discussing why the regimes degenerate. Glaucon's asking, we designed this perfect regime. Why would it ever get worse? And this is Socrates' explanation. Sounds good, Socrates. But how does our perfect regime fall apart? Shouldn't it last forever? Nothing lasts forever, Glaucon. When the regime changes, it's probably because the rulers start making mistakes in their calculations for breeding new citizens. W what do you mean? You know that for the birth of a divine being, you need a period of a perfect number. Sure, and for a human? For that, you need to take the first number where the power of roots combined with squares, with three dimensions and four defining limits, of the numbers which create likeness and unlikeness and which wax and wane make all things conversable and rational with one another. Uh-huh. Of these, the ones that form the basis of the musical fourth when coupled with five and three times increase produce two harmonies. The first harmony is a square, the product of equals, so many times a hundred. The second harmony is of equal length one way but a rectangle. One side is the square of a rational diagonal of a five by five square minus two times a hundred. The other side is three cubed times a hundred. Taken as a whole, this geometrical number is what controls better and worse births. Of course. Everybody knows that. Yes, they do. But the calculations still aren't easy. And when the guardians don't get the baby math perfect, the babies aren't perfect. <laughs> I love how you put that together. Um, you've captured beautifully the, um, the it, what I think is doubtless intentional comedy of that, of that scene. Yeah. Where he's like, oh yes, of course that's perfectly clear, Socrates. You know. Absolutely, yeah. Like, so, I, I, I don't think anyone can follow that. That's why. Yeah. That, that's that's why I found that funny, but also puzzling because I knew it's like it's it jumps out at you yeah. as something. No one can follow, follow that to for a number of reasons. One, 
uh, mathematical terminology, like the terminology for arithmetic, like saying odd and even, add and subtract and stuff like that, isn't standard in Plato's time yet. So uh, first of all, you don't always know what he says, what he means when he says, like, is he saying the square of, or is he saying the harmonic um, progression of, you know, this kind of, mm -hmm. these kind of questions. Secondly, the text is almost certainly corrupt to some degree. And the reason we know this, uh, well, because all of Plato has been transmitted through sort of curated by Byzantine uh, medieval scriptoria and lots of errors crept in. But if you don't really know the terminology, it's hard to correct the text because he's saying hekatos or hekastos in this particular passage and, and this sort of thing. And thirdly, we have lots of scolia to this, uh -huh. this and also the, um, the number of the tyrant passage from different manuscripts, which is, you know, people explaining what they think Plato means and no one agrees on it. There's no, right. there's tons of different and including among the platonists tons of different construals of what the number is supposed to be um now brumbaugh in plato's mm -hmm. mathematical imagination takes this the three four five thing to be referring to the uh three four five triangle which is of course brings us to the famous pythagorean theorem which isn't pythagorean mm -hmm. and which was known about at least you know hundreds of years before pythagoras in the near east uh, that can be demonstrated, but there is something special about this triangle because it's a whole number triangle, right triangle. And as we know from geometry class, Pythagoras's theorem tells us that the, the three and four sides squared and added together will be the same number as the square of the hypotenuse, which is the five. And mm -hmm. there's this whole thing about the Pythagoreans having called five the number of marriage because it marries the three and the four and uh, so that's why plato's referring to this but all our evidence for this pythagorean saying is extremely late comes way after pythagoreanism uh so i don't know what the hell is going on in this passage <laughs> <laughs> and i don't think we even necessarily can establish a text there's there have been lots of uh attempts to decode the right um the idea is that, uh, and, and yeah, it just says a bunch of stuff that I find quite unintelligible about Plato's, because Plato's talking about maybe genetics here, right? He's talking about how right. human bloodlines kind of decay over time and how it's impossible to predict exactly what the good strain is going to be. You know what I mean? Well, I think it's, it's more the latter than the former, right? So I, the gloss that I gave on it, in the in the podcast is that look this is obviously very complicated and we don't have a solid text for it and nobody agrees but we do know for sure that it's really difficult and so what he might be saying is that it's impossibly difficult to actually in practice run a perfect eugenics program because you're not going to be able to predict ahead of time you know which will make good births i think i think it's safe to say that's one of the things that he's definitely saying right yeah um but it's hard to avoid the idea that he really thinks that the numbers themselves are significant. And what exactly. those well, I mean, are... That's why I'm like, is yeah. it Sudoku for Sudoku's sake? Or <laughs> what's going on here? Yeah, um, it's, it's a really good question. It's a really good question. I don't have the answer. So, um, okay. And well, then let me, 
Let me play you one more. And this is one of my favorite number things in, in Plato because, I mean, I used to even use this as a, as a bonus question on exams. Um, but this is when, in Book 9, Glaucon and Socrates are talking about the life of the tyrant and how unhappy he would be. And so they get into how you're going to be really happy if your soul listens to reason. But if you let one of the other kinds of desires like spirit or your appetites take charge, then you're going to be unhappy. Um, and then they get into how much happier is the philosopher than the tyrant. Here's a clip. And that's why the tyrant is so unhappy. He's got the wildest desires. Exactly. And do you know how much less happy the tyrant is? No. Tell me. It's simple. There are three kinds of pleasures, and the tyrant it's is simple. at the third removed from the oligarchic man, and the oligarchic man is at the third removed from the king, which puts the tyrant at three times three removes from true pleasure. So based on the number of its length, the phantom of the tyrant's pleasure would be a plane, so the square and the cube show us the exact difference. It sure does. It's, a uh, a lot? It's 729, Glaucon. The king lives 729 times more pleasantly than the tyrant. Wow. That is a lot. Beautiful. And yeah, I mean, simple, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, again, nicely done. Bravo. Uh, the, uh, thank you, you. Bring out the, you bring out the comedy very well. Um, the, so what do we make of that number? Do you have any theories? <laughs> no, it's a lot. <laughs> I just, I mean, this is another one that just, it's, it's stuck in my brain because it was so like... Um, aggressively and flamboyantly incomprehensible. Yeah. Now, um, one thing that is, I think, certainly going on here uh, is some kind of astral thing. Um, and the reason... That I, was my next guess. <laughs> the reason I think that is because, well, we know that Plato is really interested in astronomy and no, nowhere is that better shown than in the Republic. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Astronomy is just an, a fledgling uh, science in Greece in his time. They're they're absorbing all this new knowledge from uh, the Near East, uh, centuries and even millennia of of astral observations and stuff like this, and kind of num crunching the numbers and coming up with this new science and trying to model things mathematically. Mm -hmm. Plato's definitely con concerned with that project, right? And there's, we have tons of evidence that I won't get into about that. Um, and 729 is uh, 364 and a half plus uh -huh. 364 and a half. So in other words, the number of days number. and nights in a year. And why do we think that that would have any significance? Because right at the end of the passage, Socrates says something like, um, so this is obvious, right, Glaucon? And Glaucon responds, <laughs> it's as obvious. Well, he says something like, it's as clear as night and day would be a good uh... English translation. But, but actually, he says something more along the lines of, um, this is clearly true as long as day and night and months and weeks and years hold sway over mankind or something like that. So he, he makes a reference to time as a kind of astral phenomenon as you know something that's marked out by the movement of well the stars and planets what we would call God the movement it, of the earth um <laughs> and so that's that references makes it very clear that we're supposed to look toward time and this value mm -hmm. happens to have 
the exact value of a year, it, nights and days in a year, uh-huh. right? So that's clearly some part of it. Um, uh-huh. But what that means is another question. Right. Well, so I mean, that's this is why I, I'm 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 loath to say I, I have a, any theories because I've I've read the seven twenty nine the number of days and nights in the year. I'm like, okay, cool, interesting. I'm like, but what is it? What else does it tell me except that there's like, it just points to this entire kind of below surface mathematical subtext that I I can't fully get to grips with. It just like it it hints that it's there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you there. That's that's my position as well. That's my uh, considered position. I have no idea what he's on about. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, look. I guess I guess I, I guess over the years we've we've come some distance from not knowing what he's on about to like knowing that you don't know what he's on and still don't know. Maybe that brings us to the second yeah. level of knowledge that uh, Socrates talks about in the Apology. Right? It's not just pure mm-hmm. ignorance. It's knowledge that you don't know. It's a kind of informed knowledge of your ignorance, mm-hmm. which is better known than... unknowns, as we had from another epistemologist. Yeah, maybe. well, maybe a slightly <laughs> lower grade epistemologist. Um, so yeah, I think that's where any safe bet is in, in, in Platonic interpretation. Is in the uh, we at least can kind of intelligently say, mm-hmm. "I have no idea what he's on about." Um, and I would go so far as to say he's he's on about something astronomical. And because he's because of the hints in the text, because of these right. like kind of playful hints right. about um, the days and nights and that kind of thing. Do we like? Do we know a lot about Greek astronomy? Are there scholars out there who are like experts in Greek astronomy and yeah. puzzling this together? I'm sure there must be. Yeah, absolutely. We we know much less than we would like to know, mm-hmm. largely because so much is lost. But we really do know a lot. We don't know. For example, we don't know how the exact mechanisms of knowledge transfer from the Near East to Greece Uh uh, of all this astronomical observational knowledge. Uh, But we know it happened for what happened. We know Plato's interested in it. We know Plato's uh, associates, Aristotle and Eudoxus of Knidos, Mm -hmm. both put forth mathematical models of the cosmos that kind of work for observational prediction and stuff like that we know plato's interested in that problem and indeed in the myth of ur which i don't know if you've talked about this but one of the really weird bits about the myth of ur and that's that's already saying something right because the myth of ur is very (laughs) weird uh ur is traveling in this plane with all the other with all these souls which are dead people Uh who are on their way to being given the next lot, their next incarnation, basically. They're sort of traveling through this yeah. other world. So just as a refresher for the listener, the myth of Ur is the closing myth of the entire Republic that Socrates tells to Glaucon. It's the one about the afterlife. Um, sorry, go go on, Earl. They're about to choose their next life. Yeah. Well, here's another example of where, you know, he he is ostensibly giving a kind of myth with an ethical message, which is like mm-hmm. something along the lines of you fundamentally are responsible for your lot in life and virtue is its own reward and those who live virtuously will be rewarded for it with a better the actions you choose determine the person you become yeah and he is saying that but he's also saying some crazy astro geometrical weirdness (laughs) because as they're walking along they see in the distance this giant kind of rainbow column 
and it's all very kind of psychedelic and you don't know where they are there's kind they're supposed to be in the traditional underworld but it's very suddenly they're not anymore and they walk they keep walking and they come to this place where they see the spindle of heaven which is a spindle you have to think of an ancient greek spindle which is this sort of whirling stick with a round bit at the bottom that is like acts like a flywheel kind of keeps it spinning Mm -hmm. a bit like a top and it's being spun by adrastea who is a personification of necessity or or um Oh no, uh, Ananke. Sorry, it's it's being spun by Ananke, like so necessity. Uh, mm-hmm. And when Ur then suddenly can look down on the whorl of the spindle, he sees that it's a cutout. It's a bit difficult to explain, but if you imagine a, um, I explained it in terms of like um, concentric like bowls sitting within one another. Yeah, exactly. So it's a it's a it's a a spherical model of the cosmos that's been cut in half. So you can look down into it and see each uh-huh. ring within it with the earth at the center. Um, and he, Plato hints at all these different planetary spheres and he gives different sizes for them and different colors for them, but it's all very unclear. And Proclus in his commentary says, oh, there's at least two different versions of this. And it, the planetary ordering doesn't match any planetary ordering we know from another source which in itself doesn't disqualify it because we have other planetary orderings from antiquity, which are just one-offs, you know, there's a lot of Mm -hmm. planetary orderings out there, um, the Mithraic ones and so on. So he sees this model of the cosmos and it's got a harmony of the spheres. Each, each sphere has a uh, siren sitting on it and she's singing a note. And because there's seven spheres in all, you get a nice uh, harmony of the spheres, which is like an entire Mm -hmm seven tone uh, scale and the three fates are sitting around kind of lending a hand in turning the outermost sphere to keep it moving and then this kind of herald comes and says okay it's time for the fates to give you your next lives here's the lots blah 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 and then they choose their their next lives and it's a little complicated but um i guess the point i wanted to bring up here is you have this very mysterious and weird excursus into what seems to be Mm -hmm. cosmic model building first of all in the underworld which is a funny place to have a look at the heavens isn't it but then there's there's reasons for this from the mystery cult traditions and the i just that whole thing i found it so difficult to picture the like topography and what was going on in the myth of her when i first heard it it felt like Again, you know, you're going to the underworld, but you're in heaven. It's a very spacey feel. You're looking at the cosmos. It just felt very like M.C. Escher, impossible geometries yeah. uh, and, and and confusing. And and what I did in the podcast is I gave, you know, the ethical message, those interpretations. And I, in this case, because the myth of our section is so long, I just did not include all the tiny details that obviously point to some other interpretation that I knew I wasn't going to have time to get into. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this stuff is 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 fascinating. So, so what do you think they meant? By, he meant by it. <laughs> well, good question. Um, I think here I can maybe give you a better answer. I'm still not going to say what I think Plato means because uh, I don't get Plato. You know, someone right. I don't know who said it, but someone said that the the classical period is the dream time of the modern West. 
And I think there's something in that. So the dream time is, this is a, a you know, an idea appropriated from Australian Aboriginal peoples who have mm-hmm. this idea of the dream time, which is this sort of quasi, it's this ancient period where ancestor spirits and sort of quasi godlike beings were kind of roaming the land and doing all kinds of stuff. And, and I think it's significant that it's the dream time because, you know, we all know what dream logic is like. In fact, in a dream, you can have an experience quite like the myth of Ur, where you're sort of like, well, it was like I was in New York, but it wasn't right. New York. And then I went in this train, but then there was a basement in the train and I went down to the basement and I was at a party. And then uh, I saw my brother, you know, like that kind of crazy uh-huh, dream. Uh-huh. Um, that makes sense in the dream. But then when you try to explain it, like philosophers of, or, uh, you know, scholars of philosophy try to say, well, it's clear that Ur must not be looking at actually the cosmic spindle, but at a model of the cosmic <laughs> spindle, because otherwise, how could he be looking down at it? It's like, don't. <laughs> it's stupid. It's a very stupid thing to say. Um, to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Plato actually yeah. had a diagram in front of him. Um, so, so think dream logic and you won't go far wrong when you're looking at any depiction of the other world. That's my, my other uh-huh. world interpretation rule of Lake. And so my point here is that, the underworld or the other world has landmarks, but it doesn't have mappable mm-hmm. topography. So that's the kind of space that Ur is in. And in that, in constructing the space this in this rather psychedelic and shifting way, where suddenly they're on a plane, you know, he goes to the underworld, that's clear. He descends because he's, he's dead and his soul has uh-huh. left his body. But then he's in this plane with, there are these gates in this in the sky, and gates in the ground. It's like, wait a minute, I thought you were underground. Mm-hmm. How can there be a sky? Oh, well, I yep. guess there's a sky. Okay, no problem. That's the kind of thing we're dealing with. And in Plato, right. in doing that, is being really true to this Greek uh, traditional otherworld construction where the where the landscape dream logic shift. of the other world. Totally. Yeah. I know. Okay, we've been on the we've been on the phone for a while, so I, I wanna I don't wanna take up too much of your time, but I do want to know if you have a short answer because if it's not a short answer like this is i know going to be a very very long answer <laughs> but i i realize that like we're sitting here and we're talking about all the math stuff in republic and we haven't even really talked about the mathematical education of, mm. of the guardians yeah right and so this is this thing and you go through and it's oh like what will they learn well the most important subject is arithmetic and then geometry and then solid geometry and then astronomy astronomy which turns out to be geometry because it's astronomy without stars mm. and then harmony which turns out to be math because it's ratios it's ratios without without music yeah. um and so in general what do you make about of that but also even just very specifically the short answer he says why should they study arithmetic and and he says oh well because it'll get them thinking about the one and the many yeah what is that Okay, well, the one. In, uh, let me go back to the first, the first thing. Um, okay. One thing that's interesting in what Plato's doing here is that you start with number arithmetic, then you mm-hmm. move to number in space, mm-hmm. um, geometry, flat space, yeah, flat space. Then you move to number in three dimensional space, solid geometry. Then you move to number in three dimensional space and movement, moving, astronomy. Uh-huh. Then you move to n- number in three dimensional space, movement in time, music, harmony, right? So he's Uh, like adding layers each time. A dimension on each, yeah. Yeah, so that's, I think, the progression. Um, And what was the next question? Well, what's the one in the many? Oh, the one in the many. Whoa, 
so the one in the many is it can be so many things but uh you know that but it's also one. in plato's um unwritten doctrines the agrafa dogmata that Pla- that aristotle talks about plato gives a basic ontology he, you know so so he mm-hmm. like all the pre-socratics who came before him he says he asked the question what is the world made from right thales said water and exagoras said noose etc plato uh-huh. says uh tohen the one and heduos the dyad the indefinite dyad the auristos duos so uh-huh. that might be what he's talking about these these kind of in a, in an almost kind of naive way this this belief that the universe arises from actual pr- metaphysical principles which are the one and the two or the dyad mm-hmm. which which is once you have two you have many right you have multiplicity and this you have to understand greek numerical theory in this like so one is not seen as a number in greek in plato's time it's seen as like the sort of mother of all numbers but it's not itself a number that's important to understand as background but um that's one reading of the one and the many right it's uh-huh. knowledge of the ultimate principles of reality so it's it's just like saying it's analogous to a modern physicist saying if you want to understand the ultimate question of reality you have to understand the big bang or something like that right Do you know okay. what i mean okay. you have to know where but it's like more abstract from. the in, the abstract metaphysical big bang yeah except yeah. as we know plate for plato uh, the term abstracts a bit misleading to describe metaphysical realities in plato right because it's more like mm-hmm. this world that we can see and touch is a bit abstract it's abstracted right. forms it's it's single unities that have been abstracted out into numerous instantiations but the forms are unified they're they're um the minimal possible number they're like the the point of the pyramid and we're living at the bottom of the pyramid so um if that makes sense I, I, you know. Well, there's there's also something he says about uh, when he's trying to explain, you know, the whole point of this education on the explicit part of it is, well, you know, you want to turn people towards the forms, right? You want to get people uh, wondering and doubting and they'll start questioning maybe. And so his justification for arithmetic, he's like, don't worry about counting your armies and everything. That's just like pedestrian what you need to be doing is like thinking about this one many paradox. And I think he, he explains something about how um, if you look at the same thing from different, doesn't the same thing always look sometimes like one, sometimes like many. Yeah. And it's, it, in philosophy to this day, uh, the problem of one and many remains uh-huh. a huge, huge problem. Uh, same, the problem of universals. It's often, it's often talked about as right. well. Um there, for example, Sorites paradoxes, which is a very a very big and potent uh, class of paradoxes, which seem to be kind of very difficult to escape from in any logical system. Uh huh. Um, which people, how, how many grains make a heap? Yeah, exactly. At what yeah. point do you go from having not a heap to a heap? There has to be a point logically. There has to be some point at which you add one more grain and it's suddenly a heap, and it wasn't a heap uh-huh. before. Except you can never really specify that, um, and that's that's a kind of illustration of a problem that really does apply to um, when we talk, you know, like if you talk about a person as being one person, yeah, but you can chop mm-hmm. them up into two pieces. Okay. Then they're not a right. person. But also the heap is still, is still many grains. Yeah. So problems of one and yeah. many, I think, you know, are fundamental problems of logic 
And mm-hmm. the kind of logic, incidentally, that was very much being done in the Eleatic school of philosophy that we know Plato was so uh, engaged with, Parmenides uh-huh. and Parmenides' followers. So it may be that that's part of the picture here. He's he's grappling with these logical problems of one and many that those guys have poked. Yeah. What, what I suggest is you, you read the Parmenides, Plato's Parmenides, mm-hmm. um, which, like, if you think you don't understand it now, <laughs> read the Parmenides, and then you'll realize the absolute depths of your ignorance, right? Because um, he, he rinses the problem of one and many to the point where you're like, the one exists and doesn't exist and nothing exists and everything exists and oneness and manyness, ah, and your head explodes. You know, it's like that. That's the, what he's Well, I mean, I, I get a lot of head exploding fr- from Plato. And uh, okay, yeah, yeah. One of, one of the things I want to mention is that, you know, we were talking about um, the divided line and how, how every word and syllable may be intentional in Plato because it's, the Republic is cut into this, such precise proportions, but reading it and particularly rewriting it in a way that would be, I thought, listenable for a regular set of ears, um, even like for my set of ears, unprimed by many years of study and just like uh, pig-headed determination. Um, when you just read the text, it's like, it feels, I can't feel the rhythms of it it feels like some parts go on forever some parts are really short some parts he's just looping around in these arguments that don't make much sense and i find him incredibly frustrating so i want to think that like you know what he's a good philosopher he's just sloppy with some kind of form he's just like his pacing is poor yeah but i guess it's not i guess he was just playing an entirely different game that that my ears can't hear i hear you i i have a theory about that it's, a, it's something that's come to me recently on rereading The Republic over the last sort of year. Um, I think he has, I think his writing process went something along the lines of, and he might have, I, I do think it's possible that he wrote The Republic, oh, he wrote and rewrote and, and uh, he sort of added new ideas when he rewrote so that eventually, because like, you know, you have the tripartite soul and then he kind of just drops it. And uh-huh. suddenly you have the four-part cognition. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, how does that fit under the tripartite soul? And he even says, like, four parts of the soul. These, you know, so it's like, what? I thought we had three parts of the soul. Um, and he's like, yeah, yeah, let's start with the two parts of the soul. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait, what? <laughs> so um, that being the case, I kind of feel like the way he might have written it, um, without getting into any details, because we just do not know, and this is completely yeah. speculative, is he had structure he had landmarks he had in fact a structure based on musical theory which i think maya alipin and others are right that that is the basic over overarching structure of the republic that mm-hmm. is based on these um these important consonant harmonies whether intentionally or not we don't know uh and sometimes he's putting in filler material yeah he has he knows he has this many uh he's probably dividing it up by lines which was the normal way to divide up i'm 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 just i'm just so glad to hear someone else say that <laughs> <laughs> he's dividing it up by lines um he knows so i've okay what have i done here okay i've done my bit about right. the divided line and i need to get to this bit uh, no i've done i've done all my amazing images and now the next big thing is going to be a reference to music. So how do I get there? Okay, well, I'll, I'll throw in a, a bit about, you know, blah, blah. So like 
the bit about um, the whole attack on Homer and um, the, the the problem uh -huh. with Homer, you know, which is so vexing to so many people because he's throughout the whole Republic, he's quoting Homer all the time and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I he, love the problem with Homer. Yeah. That's one of my favorite bits, themes of the Republic, yeah. actually. Um, Maybe that some of that is just in there because he needs to, he knows he need, he has like 500 lines to use up right, to get to right. the next bit, which has to be placed in a certain spot. So he is, I think there's filler material. I really do. I mean, I guess it's like almost like the only way to do it. If, if you want to hit these landmarks yeah. right on. Yeah. Um, um, could be wrong, but I do. And, and that would explain the, the kind of weird impression you get reading it. Right. Tell me if you have this yeah. impression as well, where you feel like on the one hand, this is a master at work and I'm reading like a piece of architecture. On the other hand, he kind of, some of the bits like the baseboards and some of the cabinets are kind of, he kind of, didn't do the same quality work on those as he did yeah. on the other bits. And he sort of like fudged a few bits to get the whole thing together. That's the kind of impression I get. Yeah, that is, that is such a good way to put it because like some of it is just mm. so precise and so carefully written. It can't be an accident, but so much of it just feels so sloppy and looping that uh, it couldn't be on purpose. Yeah. Um, which may go some way to explaining why I found it so challenging to turn this book into like a radio play that was listenable and comprehensible. Comprehensible. Yeah, well, com um, comprehensible and also kind of pleasant listening, right? Right. Because I mean, the I kind of thing that you might listen to if you weren't, you know, being threatened with flunking out of a degree or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that isn't really what the Republic is. So you're 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 doing something that Plato's not intending. He's intending this thing, putting aside the issue of the esoteric altogether for a minute. He's intending this thing uh -huh. to be difficult and recursive, and it's it's either a total mess or what I think is more likely, it's um, like got all these layers of self-referentiality and self-contradiction, which are meant yep. to bust our minds open and get us not thinking in the terms we think that we are thinking in and thinking in, you know, outside of all conceivable boxes, especially when he's talking I, about the good. Right. Yes. And so no, I, th I think that, I think that's absolutely right. Um, he's, he's, he's building, he's building brain teasers and, and yeah. the purpose is to, you know, precisely to, to vex us, as you say. Uh, but, but I read enough times in the secondary person that, you know, Plato's this literary genius. You got to attend to the dramatic movement of the dialogues. And I said, well, maybe it's true. Why don't, I've never seen anyone attend to the dramatic dial, uh, movement of the dialogues because they just, you know, they'll say it, but let, let me actually try to do it. And that's, that's why I decided to like rewrite the thing. And sometimes I was successful, but other times I was like, you know what, this isn't, a, you know, the, yeah. the dramatic movement really isn't the thing. There's all these brain teasers in here as well. And it's, it's hard to do justice to them both. I like it. I like what you're saying. Um, you know, to, to reapproach that question though, you've picked maybe aside from the laws or something like that, you've picked <laughs> the, the, the worst dialogue. Yeah. The worst dialogue to do that with, like do that with the, the, Euthyphro or the apology and it's like a beautiful it's a the phaedrus a, is cute you phaedrus, know yeah, just flirting by the river and it's a story it has um it has you can read it at numerous levels it's got it's got thrills and spills it's got comedy it's got the sublime 
it kind of has a nice bow tied on the end and it's quite it's not super open-ended even though it's aporetic in some ways that's plato as a dramatist writing a satisfying drama well yeah but good in theory is a political theory podcast and so i was asking less which of the dialogues makes the most compelling radio play and more what's the most compelling and interesting way to present plato's republic yeah anyway I do want to ask you one more thing that I think is germane to the whole idea of an esoteric hidden truth in the dialogues that's only seeable by a few or invisible. And that's the analogy make uh, that's the analogy that Plato makes or Socrates makes with knowledge and the sun. Yep. So the idea is that beholding with your mind the knowledge of the forms is like looking at the sun with your eyes. And what that tells me is that you can't understand them because we all know that if you stare into the sun, you're not going to be able to see. It's blinding. So that's not the only interpretation. Um, what do you make of this of this metaphor? Anything? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of interesting ways you could run with that. What Plato seems to be saying, though, is, or at least or I should say what Plato Socrates seems to be saying in certain parts of the Republic is that for a very small number of people, you can look at the sun. You can look at the sun of the good. And, and it's interesting. He chooses the sun as a metaphor because of course you can't stare at the sun. You know, when, when the guys come out of the cave and, and uh, in this very naturalistic sort of metaphor of the cave yeah, and he's saying, you know, Glaucon, then they're going to go up this rough and steep ascent and they're going to come out into the <laughs> into the outer world. And at first they're going to be blind, right? And so Glaucon's like, necessarily, Socrates. And then, but isn't it logical to think, Glaucon, that they're then going to start to look at um, indirect things? Shadows like, and reflections. Shadows and reflections. <laughs> and then they'll be able to look at actual things. And then finally, they'll be able to stare directly at the sun itself. And it's like, hang on a minute, no one can stare directly at the sun. It'll burn your eyes out. Like, that's a bizarre exactly. metaphor. Is that... Is that bizarre because he's just not being naturalistic? He's just, we're supposed to be thinking in terms of a kind of, uh, again, like a dream logic? Or is he intentionally putting in this weird, like kind of reference to a transcendence of the human condition? It's like, what if there were someone who could stare at the sun? Obviously, that would be someone very special indeed. Someone who can actually... I, I always just assumed he was just... That was one of those times he's stating the impossibility of it, right? Maybe. He's like, what, what it would mean to understand the form of the good is what it would mean to be able to stare in the sun, which is like humans can't do it. Possibly. Or, or you could say, um, like, humans, it's not possible in the physical world because of our bodies, but maybe you can do it. Yeah, with, yeah, yeah. Maybe you know, the souls news. can. Right. Yeah. Um, that's that's one possible reading for sure. Um, it's certainly emphasizing that it's not going to be. I mean, it's when it, when I say it's not going to be easy, I mean it's really not going to be easy. Yeah, <laughs> like we're talking about um, superhuman beings who've transcended what it is to be what's normally thought about being a human being, right? Um, and when he talks about the highest segment of the divided line, whether that yeah. be the big one or the little one, <laughs> Socrates says. And as for the highest one, uh, you know what? Uh, well, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> so you wouldn't get it anyway. Yeah, you wouldn't get it anyway. Let's move on to something else. So yeah. if that isn't a kind of little tease, like 
a very significant tease at an empty space in the dialogue that you're being invited to fill. Mm -hmm. I don't know what is. Well, I mean, <laughs> funny you should pick exactly that language because, like, as I said, my my episode on that section of the book was called Horny for the Good. Mm. And the kind of way I think about it sometimes is that there are philosophers who want to tell you something and there are philosophers who want to get you questioning. There are philosophers who are about satisfaction or desire, the ones who are like about the nut or the boner. And <laughs> as far as I can tell, Socrates is all about the boner, he right? Is. That's why he brings Glaucon right to the edge. And Glaucon's literally yelling like, tell me by Apollo, tell me what the form of the good. And he's like, nah, I can't. <laughs> Socrates is literally about the boner if you read the symposium. Yeah. Exactly. It's, uh, yeah. Like, yeah, it's not even, meta you don't even, that's actually a really good metaphor because it's not even a metaphor. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> when, um, uh, what's his, what's his name? You know, Alcibiades. Alcibiades says, you know, this one time Socrates and I were in bed all night and I was like yeah. all like rubbing up against him and trying to get him to, you know, and, and Socrates was as cool as a cucumber, never nutted. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's really part of the appeal of Plato. And that is why I'm always suspicious of all this esoteric stuff. That's why I'm always like, you know what? Is he signaling this vast underground world of happiness or is he being a tease? Which certainly he's also that at least yeah um it's a really it's a really interesting question um i i don't answer it i don't i don't have a an answer myself and the reason i don't have an answer is because plato is in the dream time his his way of thinking mm -hmm. the fundamental way he thinks the fundamental way he uses language is so different from modern ways of thinking that I can't really enter into it. And, and Plotinus who writes in the third century CE, who mm -hmm. has a extremely abstruse, highly apophatic take on the highest reality, which is the one, which of course he finds in Plato, um, esoterically expressed in the dialogues. Uh, mm -hmm. It's incredibly difficult. He, he says on numerous occasions, I can't put it into words. No one can. It's beyond the human can. I still totally get him more on the one than I get Plato on just normal talk about forms right. and stuff like that. Because Plotinus is recognizably thinking in terms that are much more similar to modern ways of thinking than Plato. So, yeah. So, yeah. Shall we, shall we conclude on that note of uh, bafflement and the impossibility of ever glimpsing the depths of of our uh hero plato i like it it's a good it's always good to end on a note of bafflement <laughs> and what is it is your tagline till next time stay esoteric yeah in this case i would say even uh be like the um the eternal reputation of plato as a literary craftsman and philosopher par excellence and stay esoteric Thank you very much, Earl. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. It's been a delight chatting with you about this stuff. Thank you, of course, to Earl Fontenelle for being our guest on the show. You can find his podcast on your podcast app or at Schwepp.com.
www.thepodcastnetwork.net. Also, special thanks to Simon Dixon and Marie for deciding to support Good in Theory on Patreon. If you want to do the same, go to patreon.com slash goodintheory. You can find us there. And if you've been listening for a while and you think you're getting anything out of the show, learning something, then remember, you can help other people find it by leaving us a rating or review. Thanks again. See you next time.